As Episcopalians, we don't talk about sin very much. It's a complex, it's a complicated topic. Indeed, there are times when things are fine, and then there are times when it might be a sin. I'm struck by that truth as I witnessed a graduation this past weekend, and my heart broke as I realized that some of the kids that were cheered the most loudly for by their classmates were actually the least popular. What should have been a moment of celebration was turned into a moment of taunting. So couldn't we say sometimes yelling and cheering for people is a good thing, and sometimes it's not a good thing. So we, as Episcopalians, don't talk about sin much because it can be varied depending on where you are and what the circumstances are. C.S. Lewis takes up this matter in his little book, Mere Christianity, where he seeks to explain the things of theology in our belief system, and he likens sin to musical notes on a piece, as a piece, of a piece of music. He says, if you were playing the piano and you played notes that were not a piece of the piano piece that you were playing, then that would be wrong. Whereas that very same note can be the right note when the music is different. And so it begs the question, how do we know what notes to play in our life? Who is writing the music that we seek to follow? Jesus reminds us in our gospel lesson today that a student is not above their teacher and the slave is not above his master. It might not seem like very good news to hear this kind of instruction this morning. Indeed, the prophet Jeremiah doesn't sound that thrilling when he talks about how he has been enticed by the love of God. He cannot refuse it anymore because he has been enticed by it. What a powerful word, enticed. Your eye catches it, and you're drawn closer, and you try to refuse, but you don't want to refuse, and so you go closer still. Jeremiah the prophet was wooed by the loving God, and he cannot refuse it any longer. But as you hear in his writings, it doesn't mean his life is rosy now. People call him a fool. They try to entice him the other way to catch his eye with something even more promising. But Jeremiah cannot refuse what he's known now in the living God, and it comes out of him, even at inopportune times, even when it's socially unacceptable. Well, Jesus is speaking to his followers in the same kind of way, because they have been enticed by what they see in him. Who is this guy, they say to one another over and over again. He heals the lame. He makes the blind to see. As Nicodemus says in John's Gospel, when he comes to Jesus at night, he says, we know that you are a teacher. I mean, you're different. Otherwise, you couldn't do what you're doing. And that was how people were talking about Jesus, trying to understand who he is and how it is that they can live in this life that he's inviting them into that he has enticed them with, the goodness and the glory of God. And so Jesus lays it out for them in some instructions, and that's where we pick it up here in Matthew's Gospel this morning. And it really doesn't sound that great, actually, if you hear it independently. Who wants to be divided? 
Who wants to be carrying around a sword? But Jesus is saying, look, the way that I'm inviting you into, not everybody's going to get. In fact, some people will feel quite threatened by it. And you'll know how threatened they are by how hard they fight you. John Newton might be a name that you recognize. And if you don't, you will now, because he's the author of the words of Amazing Grace. Everyone knows that song. I have become convinced as a religious leader that everyone knows that song. Now, maybe you know a little bit about the story behind it, but it's, we, most of us know it in a very condensed version, that John Newton was a captain of ships, and he was a part of the slave trade in the later part of the 1700s, that he had a conversion experience when he discovered the grace of God, and it was born out of that conversion, these words. Indeed, that is his life in a nutshell. But when we get deeper into the story of his life, we start to see the nuances of that conversion experience. And it might liken it a little more to our own lives, we average people trying to make a living in the world, just trying to get by. That's really how John Newton was. Sure, he says he was wanting to be somebody grand and marvelous, and he did set out to make his fortune in the shipping industry, partly because he wanted to win the woman that he wanted to marry. Her father was refusing to give her hand to him until he could make a living. And so he reluctantly became a captain of a ship, reluctantly only because it was a lot of work. And he traveled up and down the coast from England to West Africa, taking goods of England down to West Africa and picking up people in West Africa to bring back up to England in the slave trade. He was a prolific writer, John Newton, and he tells that, of course, those that he bought on the coast of West Africa were not interested in being purchased. And so they fought the moment that they got into this exchange. And so he writes, well, I treated them as enemies the minute they came on board. That's a long trip from the coast of West Africa up to England. Somewhere along the way, on one of these journeys, a storm was predicted, and it was going to be a violent storm. And John realized that their lives really were going to be on the line. People did die out there. That's part of why you made a good fortune in shipping, is if you lived, you could actually keep it. And so he found himself saying, the only way that we're going to survive this is if the Lord shows mercy. And he was struck by his own words that came out of his mouth. What is it that he needed? How is it that these words came from him? And thus began a conversation with who is God? And what is it that I can only survive with? Thus, the start of his conversion. Now, nothing happened radically there at the beginning. The music, if you will, that he was following didn't drastically change because he continued in the slave trade for almost six more years after that moment until he couldn't stand it any longer. 
So he left the shipping industry, came to the mainland, and decided to study theology. And it was in that endeavor that he discovered the grace that had been extended to him again and again and again. It changed his life. He gave himself to the life of this good news and sought to proclaim it as an English clergyman. He was given a parish in Olney, and there he began to write poems and sought the, friend, some, the help of a friend to set some of them to music. So Amazing Grace, the words that we know, were first written, were first published, I should say, in 1779. 1779, more than 200 years ago. These words were born out of John's realization that he was saved by the mercy of God over and over and over again. This began to take root in him and began to be the thing that he talked about more than anything. He, he began to reflect what we see in Paul's letter to the Romans, that he couldn't live a life of sin any longer. He wanted everything to be reflective of God's goodness and grace in his life. And that was going to take a while. And yet, by the patient and merciful love of God, it was slowly happening. John Newton joined up with other people who were interested in the abolition of the slave trade, William Wilberforce being a primary person who sat on Parliament, and thus began the fight against this industry of trading people. Now, if you can imagine for just a moment, this was not a welcomed consideration. People were not wonderfully moved in love for one another. The slave trade was a huge piece of the economic engine that drove English economy and the economy of the colonies in this new little place that we now know as the United States. It was a huge piece of the economy. So people fought against the abolition of slavery. They pulled out all the reasons they could think of to say, no, we have to keep this as part of this whole mechanism because our children will go hungry if we don't. The naked won't have clothes if we don't. And by the way, doesn't it talk about slaves in the scripture? Remember, people, this was not a welcome thing. John Newton and William Wilberforce and others were fighting with swords, if you will. And it took, took several decades to change that economic engine. Several decades of constant fighting. This is what Jesus is talking about. When you discover my grace in your life, everything is going to change. And people might not be so excited to see it. It's going to mess with stuff. It's going to mess with the system. And people who are a part of that system are not going to say, oh, that's a lovely idea. They're going to fight you tooth and nail, but don't lose heart, Jesus says. Don't lose heart. I know you. I know the number of hairs on your head. I keep up with every sparrow, and you're more valuable than a sparrow. 
Don't be afraid of them, even though they'll threaten you with everything they've got. Be afraid instead of the people who can kill the soul. And they indeed will try to do that. Jesus is reminding his disciples that when you experience the grace known in me, you will see yourself and the world differently, and it will definitely change things. I'm amazed at the goodness and glory of God, even in John Newton's life. Bill Moyers did a documentary on the poem and the hymn, Amazing Grace. First published in 1779, it really became a song shared among the people at the Second Great Awakening, which was in the early 1900s here. Um, I'm pretty sure the Second Great Awakening was here in the U.S. And that's when people began to sing it in the melody that we know now. We're talking the early 1800s, people. That was a long time ago now. Still 200 years ago. It became a song that spoke of God's ability to redeem all things, to make us new, so that we don't see ourselves as the sinners that we are, but instead we see ourselves as redeemed and made new in Christ. And indeed, John Newton saw himself that way. He remembered the sins that he had committed. 30, 40 years later, he could still hear the cries and the echoes of those that he had subjected to such suffering. But he knew he had to proclaim that God had redeemed him so that others might open themselves to God's redeeming work in their lives too. So that others might not commit themselves to sin because of hopelessness, but instead open themselves to God's redeeming work in their lives. Bill Moyers highlights this in his documentary, his PBS documentary, as he interviews different people who sing Amazing Grace. He talks to Judy Collins, who is the popular music artist who really put it on the charts. There's actually, on the, pop, on the billboard charts, there's a star by it when she sang it. And he interviews her and says, what is it about Amazing Grace that captures you? And she said, there's something very familiar about it to me. There's something deep within me that it speaks to, and I don't quite know how to explain it. He interviews Johnny Cash, who did prison concerts, as you probably know, in Huntsville, Texas. And so Bill Moyers goes to Huntsville, Texas, to the prison there, and interviews inmates and asks them, tell me about the significance of amazing grace to you. And inmate after inmate, they talk about realizing that God has forgiven them. That yes, they did horrific wrongs. In fact, as you hear some of their stories, it's, un it's unbelievable. As unbelievable as the slave trade is unbelievable. But what they came to realize is that God had redeemed all things. And that that's what they need to focus on, is on God's redeeming love. Not their list of sins or the list of sins of other people, but on the redeeming love of God made known in Jesus. By focusing on that, the right things fade away, and our attention is drawn to what God needs us to be focused on. I imagine God saying to us, well, this is what I feel like God says to me. Whitney, get up, shake it off. Come on, I need you back out there. I can't have you be distracted by your sins. Yeah, that was wrong. You messed up. Now, let's go. Keep your eye on me. 
I'll help you in this life. That is what grace does for us. It gives us a reorientation. It helps us realize that our lives can't be the fullness that we long for them to be without the grace known in Jesus Christ. The security that we long for, the security that we think the economic machine will deliver for us, can only be given to us in Jesus. The economic machine will always fail, and it will drive us into the ground as we try to support it. It will kill us as we try to support it. God says, look, I give you the security that you long for. Yes, you'll need some money to put the food on the table, to clothe yourselves. But if you listen to me, you'll discover how little of it you actually need. God reminds us by God's grace and mercy that we can be provided for in all of our deepest longings. The joy that is unbound, the peace that passes understanding, the freedom that we hope for, all of that is known in the mercy of God. The love that we want to offer and we want to receive, the forgiveness that we can't live without and that others can't live without, that is made known to us in Jesus Christ. I am impressed that John Newton's horrificness has been redeemed by God so significantly that his own prayerful reflection in 1779 continues to illuminate the lives of so many now. Those words still make possible a way for people to understand that God's grace is for them as well. That is the good news. Amen.